Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. Right now, uh, we're going to go to the phone line, and normally he's right here across from me on the desk for the next segment, Dr. History, but today is a special day. He's down in Utah celebrating the birth of another grandchild. Hello, Dr. History. How are you? Good morning. Good morning, Zeb. How you doing? I am peachy wonderful. What's going on down in the Beehive State? Well, um... As usual, road construction everywhere, but hey, that's normal <laughs> down here. But got a beautiful little dark-haired little granddaughter, uh, baby and mom doing great. So that's number 14 for us, grandchildren. So it's great. All is good. Holy cow, 14 grandkids. I would hate to have your credit card at Christmas time. <laughs> I don't even dare look. My wife takes care of that. Well, listen, even though you're long distance right now, what kind of words of wisdom are you going to share with us on Dr. History today? Well, I'm going to talk about a group of men that have kind of been uh, ignored and uh, not really treated all that great, but uh, and you don't really see much about these guys. It's called the Buffalo Soldiers. Oh. So the term Buffalo Soldier could be kind of interpreted as something bad rather than something to be admired. But to the black troopers who manned the frontier garrisons throughout the Indian Wars, it was actually accepted as a complimentary term. Mm -hmm. Now, the term actually is credited to the Indians who said that the black faces and the short hair of the black soldiers reminded them of the buffalo. And fittingly, the emblem of the black 10th Cavalry features the figure of a buffalo standing over a field that includes a war bonnet and crossed tomahawks. So that's how the term buffalo soldier came to be. Now, these troops, actually, they served honorably and played a very important role in, uh, in the opening of the West and sadly ignored uh, in the records. But uh, that role was, to some degree, kind of an accidental uh, history thing. The original concept of black regiments grew out of political motives as much as from any genuine intention to elevate the black soldier. So there was kind of some ulterior motives behind this whole thing. So in a spirit of retaliation just after the Civil War, some of the Union's most uh, vindictive leaders, uh, they thought that nothing could be more humiliating to the defeated Southerners than to have their former slaves given police authority over them as occupation troops. So this placed the black soldiers in a kind of an uncomfortable and sometimes a dangerous position because here they are over what maybe used to be one of their owners or or their masters. So kind of a uh, tricky situation there. But anyway, in July of 1866, Congress authorized the organization of all black military units. Now, there was a precedent because the first regiment of South Carolina volunteers had actually been organized during 1862 and 63, so three years earlier. But uh, again, not from the purest of motives. Um, in fact, the thought expressed by at least one officer was that uh, as, so long as the rebels were going to kill Union soldiers, in any case, uh, he said, well, white lives could be spared if some of those killed were black. Before the war was over, almost 180,000 black soldiers served in the Union Army 33,000 of them died. 
Now, I knew they had served, but I did not know it was that many of them that served in the, in the Civil War there. Now, against the strong opposition of a lot of the prominent Union officers who had just fought a war to free the slaves, four black regiments were formed. Two cavalry, the 9th and the 10th, and two infantry, the 24th and the 25th. And circumstances soon kind of changed the role of the black units as they were sent west to help fight the Indians, uh, which was kind of ironic because they uh, fought for freedom themselves, and yet here we go, they're going to fight against the Indians who were just trying to be free. But anyway, where the black soldiers did serve as occupation troops, uh, in Texas, for example, they often uh, suffered hatred and violence from the civilian population. In fact, one of the very first victims of Texas outlaw John Wesley Hardin was a black trooper. Hmm. So Hardin boasted that he commanded the soldier to, quote, surrender in the name of the Southern Confederacy. And when he did not, Hardin just shot him. I mean, that's just kind of what they were up against. Let me ask you this. I'm going to interrupt you just for a quick second. I've been way too quiet too long. That's a first for me. But when these soldiers went through various towns, villages, etc., were they received to the point where they got the same kind of treatment, maybe at hotels or livery stables, etc.? What did they do? They were still uh, kind of ostracized, kind of, uh, you know, they were not treated well as they, uh, in anywhere they went, pretty much. So, yeah, it, it was kind of a sad deal, because here they are fighting the, fighting the Indians to make lives, uh, make safer uh, living for the whites. But uh, anyway, it's kind of, a, kind of a sad deal in some ways. But, you know, the unfortunate legacy of civilian animosity toward the black occupation soldiers was really it was handed down from generation to generation. And while really their genuine contribution to the safety of settlers from Indians was a lot of times just downgraded or re- not even recorded. So when they did do something good, uh, sometimes the, uh, the credit went to the white units. And in view of many of the time, it was not uh, uh, quite the right thing to attach important accomplishments to what they quote, said, quote, was an inferior race. I mean... It, you know, it's a sad deal, because here they were brave, strong soldiers doing the best they could. And, in fact, until very recent years, uh, a reader of Western history found few references to indicate that one at one time or another, uh, during the post-war Indian fighting years, virtually every army post of any importance in the West was manned partly or entirely by black troops. So the Buffalo soldiers for generations kind of remains the invisible men of the frontier history. And that's something that was kind of enlightening to me, uh, that there were so many that uh, actually uh, manned entirely a fort mm-hmm. in different places in the West. Mm-hmm. Now, despite the neglect, consider the record. Here's the record. Eighteen Congressional Medals of Honor for heroism were awarded to black soldiers during the relatively brief period of the Indian campaign. And it stands to reason that for each uh, heroic act that was recognized and rewarded. There were probably a lot of others that did not uh, receive recognition, and they were just forgotten, just because of the because they were black. So there were probably more occasions where they should have received medals for their bravery. Now consider the obstacles. Okay, first of all, illiteracy was almost universal among the early, early black recruit, recruits, and in their previous condition of slavery. Most have been discouraged or even expressly forbidden to learn to read and write. 
uh, it was recorded that when the 9th Cavalry Regiment was organized, only one black trooper in it could read and write well enough to act as a sergeant major. But uh, still, they came through. They really did. Uh, in some respects, it was their background of sa- slavery that actually helped make them good soldiers, as the Army defined the term. So consider this. They were accustomed to taking orders without question. They were used to hard work and pretty much primitive conditions. Now, if $13 a month seems like poverty to the white recruits, that was really good to these uh, to these Buffalo soldiers. And these were men that were just being paid uh, much less, if anything at all. And another thing, they had military uniforms, they had housing and food, and this was also a step up from the average ex-slave. So especially the field hand, uh, something he had never known. And once the regiments had passed through their shakedown, which I assume that means basic training, I guess. But the rate of desertion was only a fraction of that compared with the white units, such as armed, or, uh, Custer's uh, 7th Cavalry. They, he lost a lot of guys to uh, desertion. Well, That's yeah, but if they had a crystal ball, can you blame them? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. If you were with Custer, yeah, I'd say, I, I'm going home for a little while. <laughs> but ironically, the black regiments faced considerable discrimination and doubt from a lot of the Union officers who had left the fight to free them. There was a, a Major General Carr. He actually refused a black regiment, declaring that blacks were not fit to be soldiers. He revised his opinion in 1869 when the H&I troops of the 10th Cavalry, with, with whom he was traveling, stood their ground and fought off a fierce attack by several hundred Cheyenne in, in a place called Beaver Creek in Kansas. So when he saw how well they fought, I think he changed his mind. Mm-hmm. Now, Custer was another one who actually declined to serve with black units. But his wife, Elizabeth, told the story. She says uh, an account of the 7th Cavalry's first Indian fight just outside of Fort Wallace, Kansas, in June of 1867. So obviously this was before uh, the Little Bighorn. But anyway, a troop of the 7th Cavalry charged a large party of Cheyenne. They were met by a countercharge. Anyway, Elizabeth Custer, her story relates that a dozen black soldiers of the 10th happened to be at the fort to obtain supplies for an outpost. Well, when the battle started, they did not wait for orders. They jumped into a wagon. They had the whip popping over the heads of them, four mules. Rifles were blazing. Those soldiers of the 10th charged out on the wheels and joined their white comrades in arms, and they drove the Indians off. So they, these were brave guys. But, you know, black units in those times had uh, what's called black non-commissioned officers, but the, all the officers were white until there was a Lieutenant Henry O. Flipper, became the first black West Point graduate in 1877, and many of the officers, such as Colonel Benjamin Grierson, uh, were kind to their troops. They displayed a genuine affection for them. Uh, others, such as uh, Colonel William Shafter, they were pretty rough on these guys. Now, I'm going to talk a little more about this Shafter guy. He commanded black troops during most of his years of frontier service, and he was pretty ruthless the way he handled them. Uh, he used them on hard, uh, very hard on many really tough campaigns, but he actually stood up firmly in their defense against civilian abuse. In fact, in Texas, he led black troops of the 9th into places that no white or black men had ever been before, and they suffered hardships and hunger and thirst. So it was rough on these guys. 
Now, despite his reputation as a ruthless disciplinarian, he got pretty mad when anyone abused his soldiers. Now, at Fort Davis, Texas, uh, his black infantrymen guarded stations along the stagecoach route in Apache country. Now, elsewhere, white soldiers uh, doing the same thing were allowed to ride a coach back to their permanent post after their tours of duty. But the line made the black troopers walk or even refuse to allow them to eat at the stage stops because it might offend the white passengers. Well, this uh, Shafter, this Colonel Shafter, uh, he put an end to that by declaring that a soldier not good enough to enjoy common courtesy would not guard anyone's stagecoach or station. Anyway, his action kind of made some enemies, but his order prevailed. They were able to be treated equally. Now, his defense of the black trooper in another case led to an incident that kind of haunted his later military career. There was a sheriff that came onto the Fort Davis ground to arrest a soldier for being drunk. Well, Shafter reasoned reasoned that the trooper's color would automatically prevent his receiving fair treatment. So he ordered the, the sheriff off the post, told him to get the heck out of there. Well, the soldier escaped punishment, but Shafter did not. There was a complaint that was lodged against him, and he was transferred because of the incident, and a mark was placed on his record that kind of handicapped him for years to come. Now, in the end, however, Shafter did prevail. He was an old Indian fighter and leader of black troops. He became commander-in-chief of U.S. Expeditionary Forces to Cuba in the Spanish-American War. Hmm. Now, a similar advancement awaited another frontier commander of black troops, a guy named John J. Pershing, and his nickname was Black Jack. Uh, he led black and white troops across the Mexican border in pursuit of Pancho Villa. He later commanded the American forces in France during World War One. So I, I think I heard, do we have a listener? That yeah, we have a, uh, we'll take a real quick call, and it's going to be quick. Caller, you're on the air. Go ahead quickly, please. They ended up hanging up, sir. All right, thank you. Go ahead, Dr. History. Okay. Anyway, one of the most unusual contributions by black troopers was with the battle with the Plains Indians, and it was made le- uh, legendary with Seminole scouts, who served mainly in Texas with uh, guys like Colonel Ronald McKenzie. So the Seminole scouts were actually a mix of Indian and black blood, and a lot of them were uh, part uh, escaped slaves and the descendants of slaves who had fled into the Florida swamps to live with the Seminole Indians. So there was intermarrying and and, uh, and, and half uh, black and, and half Indian, half Seminole. But uh, anyway, after the Army defeated the Seminole Indians, they were moved to the West and driven into Indian territory and finally into Mexico, where they could not be pressed back into slavery. And though in appearance they were black, they were Indian in heritage, and as scouts they were famed for their superior ability as hunters, trappers, and fighters. There was a Captain Frank W. Perry of the 9th Cavalry that went into Mexico in 1870 and invited the Seminole Indians, or the Seminole and Black Troopers, or Scouts, to return to the United States and serve as Army Scouts. And land grants and homes for their families were to be their reward. Well, they served initially along the border, dressed more in Indian style than military. Some of them even wore a buffalo horn war bonnet. And under the command of Lieutenant John Bullis, the Seminole Scouts helped take McKenzie on his famous raid against the Lipan and Kickapoo tribes deep in Mexico in 1873. 
Well, the following year, 21 Seminole Scouts did serve with McKenzie in that in his uh, victory over Comanche, Kiowa, Cheyenne. So, in 1875, during a skirmish at a place called Eagle's Nest Crossing on the Pecos River, this Bullis, this uh, uh, Lieutenant Bullis, was suddenly left afoot and at the mercy of some 25 or 30 Comanche Indians. Well, he had three Seminole scouts, and they dashed to his rescue under heavy fire and carried him out through the middle of the Comanche ranks. Anyway, the three were among the 18 black recipients of the Congressional Medal of Honor. In the end, however, their services were no longer needed against hostile Indians, and once again the Army broke their promise of land grants to the scouts and their families, so they ended up not really getting anything other than maybe the pay that they got. But anyway, again and again, opponents of the frontier black units charged that uh, black soldiers would not fight. And again and again, from the Rio Grande to the Big Horns to Buffalo, the Buffalo soldiers proved them wrong. They did fight very courageously. Uh, the Western artist Frederick Remington, Remington wrote an article in 1889 describing his ride with black troopers in Apache country soon after the Apache campaigns had ended. And he said, quote, I am often asked, will they fight? And he said, that is easily answered. They have fought many, many times. So I hope this uh, show sheds a little light on the Buffalo soldiers and what a huge influence they had on the, the West, uh, taming the West and helping against the Indian uh, campaigns that were going on at the time. You know, Doc, let me ask you this, uh, and I cannot. I'm sitting here and I'm trying to rack my brain to remember the two movies. There were two movies made, uh, one, I think, in the 50s and another one after that about the Buffalo Soldiers and our cavalry. Uh, I cannot remember the names of those movies. Well, I don't either. And I like say, if you look at Hollywood and movies and one thing or another, and even the history books, I don't think they give enough credit to the Buffalo Soldiers and their contribution. So, like I say, they've kind of gone uh, under the radar for many years, and they deserve to be recognized for their great contribution. One of the things I was going to ask you is, did uh, ever a regiment of the Buffalo Soldiers, were they ever here in the Northwest or in Utah or Wyoming, any of these states? You know, I did not find any direct references. But the fact that they served and manned uh, some of the forts and garrisons, you know, they had to have come up this direction somewhere, up into Montana, Wyoming, Idaho. Uh, you know, I'm sure it wasn't just all in the, the southern part of the country. But I, I have no record of exactly, uh, again, that the history does not tell us a lot about them. Okay. Well, I tell you what, it was a very, very interesting program. And now let's talk a little bit about your ever-increasing family. Fourteen grandchildren. My goodness, yep. you're beaming like a Cheshire cat. Oh, it's great. And uh, the oldest one is 14, so I've got them from... Five days old, up to age 14, and I love every minute of it. Oh, my goodness. I'll tell you what. Well, you have a very enjoyable time with your family down there in Utah. What about next week? What are we going to talk about? Well, uh, I've got some stories in mind, so I actually have some ready. Let me ask you, I was going to ask you one other quick question. When you started talking about $13 a month wage to the Buffalo Soldiers, could you at some point on one of your segments break down the costs of what things 
cost at a store or a surplus or a supply store? I mean, so that people can understand. Maybe it was a nickel for this. Maybe it was a quarter for that. Maybe it was a dollar for that. So they could see basically how far $13 might have gone. Yeah, I can I can do that. I've seen that in a few places. Okay. Yeah, I'll do her. Well, Dr. History, God bless you. Did it again. Have a safe journey back home. All right. Talk to you later, Zach. All right. Thank All you right. very much. Perfect.